Welcome to the Odyssey Podcast, students telling the story of science. Today, episode two, this is your brain on love. Human beings are obsessed with love. We search for love, we overanalyze love, we do crazy things in the name of love. Love has a massive influence on our daily lives, but most of us don't stop and think about what's going on in our bodies, and especially in our brains, when we experience love. With Valentine's Day on the horizon, we spoke with three researchers who specialize in the science of love, and what we discovered was fascinating. From parental love, to romantic love, and of course, to sex, it turns out we are wired for love. Dr. Kim Wallen is a professor of psychology and behavioral neuroendocrinology at Emory University. His research focuses on the hormones, brain regions, and even the social context of sexual behavior in humans and non-human primates. Here, he illustrates the differences between these species and explains what role sex can play in love and vice versa. I just wanted to start by asking, what are your thoughts on sex and attraction and their relationship to love? My sense is that love is probably something that's uniquely human. That there are bonding mechanisms, there are attraction mechanisms, there are many aspects of animal behavior in which they form patterns of association, but I'm not sure that it's anything like human love. Because humans have other attraction systems that we wouldn't say our love. I mean, you can be attracted to somebody and that doesn't automatically mean you're in love with them. Right. <laughs> and so love, I think, is psychologically a quite different state than attraction or friendliness. I think what the monkey work suggests is that it's possible to separate the motivation to engage in sex mm-hmm. from affectional or bonding systems, which seem to be completely different. It right. doesn't, doesn't look in the rhesus monkey, like there's any kind of social bonding, male-female social bonding. I suspect one doesn't have to have love to desire sex. But one may have to have love to desire sex with a specific person. So there can be the general state of desiring sex mm-hmm. that's kind of an amorphous sense that isn't centered on any individual And that's, I think, quite different from the desire for sex with an individual. Right. And it may be in that circumstance that love becomes a really important modulator Mm -hmm. of that. Humans and other non-human primates are actually somewhat unique in the animal world when it comes to sex. Mm -hmm. Because um, in all primate species that have been studied, all anthropoid primates, they don't have to have hormones to actually engage in sex. So their physical capacity to engage in sex is not under the control of hormones, unlike rodents where it is and a variety of other species. So from from the monkey standpoint, it is tightly coupled to the fertility cycle. And in fact, exactly the same hormones that make the female fertile are the hormones that make the female interested in sex. And so if you look at the sort of peak of a female monkey's interest in sex, it is... um, at exactly the same time as that she's most fertile. So the best we can do now, at this point, really are to talk about what kinds of changes we see in in, in humans, what kind of changes we see in um, stated interest in sex, and 
hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. So the correlational sorts of studies. And those are, those are pretty, here's a, actually, that's a, from a very nice study that was done in women. So it's that cover on the front, the, the figure on the front. Mm -hmm. So in this study, women were asked every single morning when they got up to give um, a saliva sample. And they were also recorded in a diary their perceived interest in sex. And so if you look at that, that's the plot of progesterone against uh, stated desire. So she's no longer fertile. And what you see is that her interest in sex plummets. Mm -hmm. um, and if we do that same kind of plot against estradiol, we see that prior to maximum fertility, estradiol is actually predicting what she reports. Okay, side note. Dr. Wallen just mentioned progesterone and estradiol. Those are hormones. Hormones are like chemical messages that cells in our bodies can send to each other to produce a response. Each hormone produces a different response in the body. This episode of Odyssey is packed with hormones, and you're going to hear about a few of them. There's estrogen, testosterone, oxytocin, which comes up a lot, and vasopressin. Then there's another type of chemical messenger called dopamine, and that's mentioned later on. So she has this sort of two-hormonal system that looks this strongly correlated with sexual desire, one sort of increasing it and the other one driving it down. So those are all fertility hormones, but in very different ways. How is this different in males since they don't undergo a fertility cycle? The sex difference in sexuality in humans is the difference between a relatively constant drive and a cyclic drive. I think it's true that males are more consistently interested in sex. It sort of never goes away. Mm -hmm. And as most late adolescent males, if they're honest, will tell you, it's, it's kind of a burden, right? You, right? you never escape it. It's always there. Women, on the other hand, go through cyclic fluctuation, which means, and, and when they are interested in sex, I think they are as intensely or more intensely interested in sex than males are. It's just that it's not forever. Right. One of the effects of this, I think, is that it gives women much greater cognitive control over their, over their sex because as they learn what their own cycle and their own psychology is like, they know that if they're feeling really intensely interested in sex now, that if they wait a few days, it's going to go away. Right. Guys don't have that option. If they wait a few days, it's still there. And in right. fact, it may be worse. And so they identified 278 different reasons why women have sex. And I can tell you that the vast majority of those had nothing to do with sexual desire or sexual motivation. Right. There was an episode of How I Met Your Mother where they were talking about all the different reasons to have sex that have nothing to do with sexual interest or love. That's right. So. And, and see, that's what, that's what makes primates so interesting because since they don't have to have hormones to have sex, right. they can have all these other reasons. I mean, if you were a guinea pig... It would do no good to want to be able to have sex to make your partner feel better right. because you couldn't do it. Right. So what's the point? Like, why even have this control mechanism for sexual desire and attraction? Unbridled sex is a social threat. It's a, so, it's a threat to social order. Right. And I know that, may, that makes me sound sort of very conservative, but I don't really see it as a conservative thing. No. It's, just, it's just the nature of... Um, why we keep sex relatively private is because we want to minimize its impact on the social structure and day-to-day -day, um, 
interactions and so forth. Imagine if humans were like rhesus monkeys who have sex in public. Oh, you just like, you mean disruptive of like a day-to-day functioning of the world. That's right. Ah, Hard hard to maintain social order. And actually that is one of the problems for rhesus monkeys. The, the, as I said, the power structure is all built around females. Right. So we actually have some evidence that when females become interested in males, it actually increases the aggression and conflict with other females in the group. They stop grooming the other females. They're focused on the male. If they're lower ranking, they will get harassed by higher ranking females. And I think it's because the whole thing is a, is a potential threat to the social structure. So what you see is the evolution of this rather acute hormonal influence on sexual desire. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably evolved actually to minimize the impact of sex on the social structure. Mm-hmm. I mean, monkeys like humans, we spend vastly more time doing other things than sex. Right? Sex really, if you were to add up at the end of one's life, all of the time they spent actively engaged in sex, it would be a really, you know, maybe it's a month mm-hmm. out, of, out of several hundred months. Um, yet, its impact is much greater than the amount of in, the investment we actually make in it. And so, they, so you evolve these mechanisms to sort of constrain and limit when you engage in sex so that the basic social structure can be maintained without being threatened by that. Now that we've had a whirlwind tour of the science of sex, let's switch gears for a few minutes. Dr. James Rilling is a professor of anthropology at Emory. He and his team investigate the neural framework for parenting and the difference between love from a mother and love from a father. How is the bond between a parent and a child unique compared to other social bonds? The main way would be because it involves so much altruism. It's probably the best example in nature of altruistic behavior where one individual is engaging in a behavior that benefits another to a cost to themselves. You don't see that much altruism in nature outside of these types of sort of relationships. Right. And what species Um, exhibit this? I think a good place to start is that um, female rats and male rats um, who who have not given birth, they don't like pups. They find pups aversive. And once female rats go through pregnancy and once they're exposed to the hormones of pregnancy, then they find pups to be rewarding. So there's some sort of transformation that they go through, and it's due to the hormones of pregnancy. And basically, the hormones that are important are estrogen, because estrogen actually prepares the brain to be sensitive to oxytocin. So it it upregulates oxytocin receptors. And then at birth, there's this big release of oxytocin. Okay. Okay, and oxytocin then binds to the oxytocin receptors, and the, the key region where that is happening is this a region called the hypothalamus, called the medial preoptic area. All right, medial preoptic nucleus of the hypothalamus. What the hell is that? Basically, it's an area in the brain. The human brain has all these really specialized areas. They all have a specific job to do, And they all sound really cool to say. There's the hypothalamus, there's the nucleus accumbens, and then there's one called the anterior cingulate cortex. They're all going to be explained later in this episode. The 
key region where that is happening is this a region called the hypothalamus, called the medial preoptic area. And when that happens, medial preoptic area both activates a system that's involved in the motiva- motivation to approach offspring, and it inhibits a system that's involved in the motivation to avoid offspring. So some species like like rats are what we call promiscuously maternal. So once a female rat gets that hormonal exposure, she'll be maternal to any pup you place in front of her. But there are other species like sheep where the um, maternal behavior is very selective and, and the mother will only do that towards her own offspring. And that seems to have to do with the scent of the offspring, which she can recognize. Do you think humans are promiscuously maternal like rats are? And if so, how do you think that's triggered? You know, a lot of parents adopt children and seem to love them very much and are able to develop all of the feelings that uh, biological parents have. So in that way, it does seem like we can extend these emotions and nurturing, nurturing instincts to, to, other, to other individuals, to other children. Yeah, when we present pictures of children, those are very good at activating sort of reward systems in the brain. And there's actually a really good study where they took pictures of babies and they manipulated them to be more cute or less cute. And they found that the cuter they made the baby, the more it would activate these reward centers in the, in the moms who were viewing them. And they also found that the more that these reward systems were activated, the more motivation they reported to care for the babies whose pictures they were viewing. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's benefits to being cute if you're, if you're a baby. <laughs> How does one identify uh, a universally cuter baby? Specific characteristics... Um, that are associated with younger animals of species that make them more appealing. Um, <laughs> things like big eyes, you know, small mouth, and certain things about the body proportions, like a big head relative to the body, <laughs> and those things. Um, and so, yeah, you can just morph the pictures to have more of those sorts of characteristics. Yeah. So, and what? So one of the things we found, for example, in our work is that. The more the parent activates these reward system structures when they're viewing a picture of their child, the more involved they are in uh, day-to-day instrumental caregiving activities. So we found that in the fathers that we did research on. So the fathers who were more involved in caring for their kids had a stronger uh, reward system response when they viewed pictures of their child. So fathers obviously don't give birth. So how does a father form that bond with their child? The father doesn't go through pregnancy, but somehow through the signals he gets from the infant or some other way, he does experience some hormonal changes. And in our data, we've been able to show that fathers not only have lower testosterone levels than men who are not fathers, but they also have higher levels of of oxytocin in their blood than non-fathers do. So um, there are some hormonal changes. But I think it's probably safe to say that women are uh, more primed by hormones for parenting than men are, and that maybe that's really important, and it might give them a little bit of a head start in forming a bond and an attachment with the child. And for men, that process might take a little bit longer, and it might require a little bit more sort of determination and and cognitive motivation that the bond might not be emotional immediately um, and it might kind of develop more over time. 
Is there a typical timeline for that? Do you study fathers um, at various stages of parenthood? Yeah, it's a good question. One of the main things they struggle with is just the babies are so much less developed and, and less social than they ever thought they would be, and so they're not really getting anything back that's rewarding from the infant. Like, for the first three months, they're not smiling even. They're not, well, they're not giving social smiles where mm-hmm. they're reciprocating your smiles and they're not laughing at you. And, and you know, the, a lot of new fathers have these visions of playing with their kids, and but that doesn't come, that sort of reciprocal play where your kid's laughing with you and so forth, that doesn't come until much later, you know. So, so that first uh, year can be... Sometimes it doesn't quite meet the expectations that fathers have. Do you feel like your experience as a father influences the way you think about paternal care and bonding? My experience as a parent uh, really informs the research questions that I ask and how I think about them as well. But I just, I, yeah, I guess it's caused me, to th- I think a lot about specifically the role of fathers in child development and what it is that fathers can provide that uh, help children's psychosocial development and what it is that we do that's different from what mothers do. And one of the ideas that I, that I really like um, that kind of resonates with me is this idea that often moms are providing a child with safety and security and comfort. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the father's role is more to expose the child to the world outside the home and to kind of serve as a, a way of introducing the child to the outside world and um, allowing them to experience what's going to come at them and get them prepared for the world outside the home and to and to be there to support them as they're learning all these lessons about the outside world. So that's kind of, yeah, kind of what I look at as, as my, one of my main functions as a parent. And then also the importance of fathers seem to have a particular role in play and especially rough and tumble play. And there's a lot of good evidence now that rough and tumble play is really good for kids, that being kind of destabilized and teased a little bit helps them to kind of learn how to deal with that. And it's, it turns out to be really good for their social development, and they tend to be more popular kids if they can learn how to deal with this sort of thing. And so it has a lot of different benefits. That doesn't um, surprise me at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think also I've become more and more convinced that, you know, when men make a decision to have a child, that it's really, really important that they be there for their children and be involved because there's more and more evidence that paternal involvement is really important. I think it's important to to think carefully before having children, (laughs) and if you do, make a commitment to be there and to be involved. Now that we've spoken about good parenting and we've already conquered sex, Let's see if we can tie them together. Dr. Larry Young is an expert in social and romantic bonding. One of his largest areas of research is where we can find monogamous behavior in the animal kingdom. He also recently published a book called The Chemistry Between Us, Love, Sex, and the Science of Attraction. Let's hear him bring it all home. A male can behave in such a way to maximize the number of offspring that he can have. And that would be to mate with as many females as possible. Don't form any bond whatsoever, but just strive to make that dopamine system in your nucleus accumbens activated by finding females and mate with them. Okay? And in some cases, that's the best strategy. He's going to produce the most that survive. Whereas this guy who mates with somebody and then 
is suddenly bonded with her, and he doesn't want to mate with anybody else. He just wants to. He's only going to have a few babies. But if the predators are coming in and eating all the ones that don't have fathers around protecting their babies, then suddenly this guy who only had a few babies but decided to protect them, his genes are going to be passed into the population more efficiently. So the prairie voles. He's talking about voles. V-O-L-E. Voles. They're these rodents that sort of look like big fat mice. Yeah, we didn't know what they were either. But apparently there are these things on Earth called voles, and Dr. Young studies them in his research. He talks about two types, prairie voles and meadow voles. So the prairie voles, they form these bonds, but they're also very highly social, and we have them, many of them in our laboratory. But we also have a different kind of vole that looks almost exactly the same, but they're from a little bit different environment, and they're not monogamous at all. They don't form bonds at all. We use those two different species to do comparisons in the brain to see what is different about the oxytocin system in the animals that can form bonds versus the ones that cannot. And one of the key factors that we found was that uh, prairie voles have oxytocin receptors in the parts of the brain that are involved in addiction and reward. The metal voles don't have receptors there at all. So they both have oxytocin. They both release oxytocin when they give birth and maybe when they mate. But because the metal voles don't have the receptors in the part of the brain that's involved in reward and addiction, they don't have the same experience. And so the metal voles don't form a bond. And again, it's going back to these receptors that are in this nucleus accumbens, this addiction area. Oxytocin seems to be important to act there. If we block those receptors, the animals don't form a bond. But oxytocin isn't acting alone. Uh, Dopamine, which is important for addiction, cocaine releases dopamine. Mm -hmm. If you block dopamine receptors in the nucleus accumbens, they also don't form a bond. Oxytocin's contribution to the bond is simply channeling the social information about the partner into that reward system. It's increasing the salience of social stimuli. So, for example, if a male rat has never mated before and suddenly... He finds a female in estrus, and he tries to mate with her. Finally, he achieves his goal, and he releases dopamine. And his brain is experiencing this dopamine and the, the pleasure, but he's also smelling this, the cues of the individual that he's with, um, but it's at a very coarse level. So he can smell this is a female in estrus. It's different from a male or another juvenile. It's the specific smell of a female in estrus. And he spends the rest of his life seeking females in estrus. But the perivole is different in the sense that because they have these oxytocin receptors in the accumbens, the brain is not just detecting a female in estrus. It's detecting the individual identity Mm. of that female. Mm. And so the brain learns that this particular female can produce this reinforcing state. And so that's how the selective bond. Oxytocin is, as, as in a mother, when she is nursing her baby, oxytocin is causing the brain to look at every little feature and every little smell of that little baby so that she becomes bonded with that baby. The same thing is happening in these prairie voles when they are mating their brain is processing that social information that carries the identity of the individual. Males and females may use slightly different systems. So both, both males and females use oxytocin, okay? But males also use another molecule called vasopressin. 
Vasopressin in other species is involved in territorial behavior, scent marking, okay, aggression, and it's a male typical molecule. So males have more vasopressin than females do. Again, if you look in the prairie vole brain, you see vasopressin receptors are concentrated in several areas, but one of those areas is a part of this addiction circuit. Again, we can block those vasopressin receptors in male prairie voles and they won't form a bond with a female even if they mate with them. That just shows you how behavior is dependent on the expression patterns within the brain of these receptors and that evolution can toy around with not the protein sequence but what parts of the brain are expressing it and therefore allow behavior to evolve. Are there any specific behaviors or interactions that cause the release of oxytocin? Certain kinds of things do cause oxytocin release in people. Mm. And so massage, looking into another person's eyes. Yeah, I think Just, gazing into your eyes is so funny, but that's like right. dogs too. It's right, like, the dogs. Yeah. When dogs gaze into their owner's eyes, the owners get a release of oxytocin. <laughs> so I think that, you know, sitting down with your partner, having a conversation, looking at them in their eyes, touching physically touching each other, and then to go even further, sex, sexual interaction. You know, there's the, the t two most potent releasers of oxytocin is vaginal cervical stimulation that occurs during birth, but that also occurs during sex. And also the second one is, is nipple stimulation that occurs when the baby begins to suckle because that's what's going to make the milk be ejected into the baby's mouth. And in humans, breast stimulation has become part of sexuality. There's no other species on this planet where the males have developed a fascination for the um, organ that is involved in providing nutrients to the babies. So I happen to think that our sexuality has evolved to basically recapitulate the physiological stimulation of birth and nursing to activate these oxytocin systems that strengthen the bonds. Humans can mate face to face looking at each other. Sex is not just for transmitting sperm from one individual to another in humans, mm -hmm. but sex is actually activating this bonding circuitry that's helped strengthening the relationship. Well, when you're in the very early stages of love, you can't stop, get your mind off of that person. And you're always thinking about how to be around that person. And, um, you know, and through these uh, interactions where you're having this dopamine, but you're also, your brain is focusing on the face, so the face becomes ingrained into the reward system, the sound becomes ingrained, maybe smells become ingrained into the reward system. That's the part of the addiction. You're addicted to the cues of the partner, and you want to be with those. Um, after a number of years, the excitement is not as strong as it used to be in the beginning, and then that dwindles. Well, some clues of that came from our work with voles again, where we, um, we know that voles stay together generally for their lifetime. If they lose a partner, they don't usually take on another partner. So what we said was, let's see what happens in a vole if, if they're pair bonded and we take away their partner. So we had males that were with females and they pair bonded, and then we had males that were just hanging out with their brother. So they had social interaction, but they, they weren't pair bonded. And then we took half of each of those group 
and took away the partner. They either took away the brother or took away the female partner. And then we waited about five days, and we measured their stress response and their behavior. And the, the animals that had pair bonded and then lost their partner had elevated stress hormone levels, but not the ones that were just away from their brother. And uh, they also showed depression. That behavior was regulated by a molecule called corticotropin-releasing factor. And so we began to study that, and we found that the receptor for that is almost 100% co-localized to oxytocin neurons. Mm. And what happens is when they lose their partner, or they're just away from the partner for a certain amount of time, this corticotropin releasing factor is released in the brain. It acts on those oxytocin neurons, and it shuts them down. It silences them. Mm. So suddenly they experience a withdrawal of oxytocin. That withdrawal of oxytocin is what gives them the negative affect, the feeling of loss, they, and it drives them to want to find their partner, to reunite with the partner. So the same sort of process is involved in addiction. You know, in humans, we know that losing a partner can increase mortality, decreases immune function, increases cardiovascular disease. Having this relationship is really healthy for us, and our brains have evolved so that that relationship is beneficial. Romantic love, at its core has the same features as the neural mechanisms of pair bonding. But above and beyond that, we have our complex neocortex that allows us to be introspective and to think about our partner and think about the future and the past and all of these things. And that gets mixed in with these deeper emotional neurochemicals and brain regions that are the basis of the bond in the first place. The evolutionary history of love can be seen in animals, but the uniqueness of love may not be able to be seen in animals. And um, we're not very close to figuring that out. I think that's going to be a mystery for a very long time. Love is complicated. And it's even more powerful than we thought before we started our investigation. What we know now is that ancient systems in our brains, behavioral systems that began simply to foster procreation, were later adapted to ensure the survival of our children, and then they were refined for human bonding, giving rise to the ancient precursor of what we call love. Our three scientists all marveled at the unique human experience of love. Along the way, we learned how hormones like oxytocin and how selective areas of the brain are key players with concrete purposes but we've also realized that the wonder, the curiosity, the pain, and the beauty of love are even deeper and more fascinating than science can fully describe on its own for now. We would like to thank Drs. Kim Wallen, James Rilling, and Larry Young for their time and expertise. To suggest a topic for a future episode, tweet us at odyssey underscore podcast. Odyssey is created by Dave Matthews and Taryn McLaughlin, produced by David Golden, and narrated by me, Michael Evans. Special help from Jamie King and Allison Stevenson. Our music today comes from Poddington Bear and The Bell. Odyssey is supported by Emory University's SciComm and the Emory Media Council. The opinions expressed on Odyssey do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for more students telling the story of science. You know, every morning I wake up and I think, 
unbridled sex is a social threat. 